Uh, We are in John chapter 14 this morning. If you'd grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, there are some Bibles uh, sort of sprinkled throughout the row in front of you. You can grab one of those and turn to page 847. Page 847 for John 14. And if you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, uh, we would encourage you to take that Bible as a gift from us. Uh, We want you to have God's Word in your hands and and your home and being able to read that. So uh, please take that as a gift from us. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 24, the coming of the Holy Spirit, verse, uh, uh, sorry, part one. Uh, I, I maybe should have entitled this the sending of the Spirit because that's really what Jesus says here, but uh, I hope you uh, understand where we are going this morning and perhaps have even read ahead uh, as I often encourage you to do. We're continuing, of course, in our study of the Gospel of John in a section known as the Upper room, upper room Discourse. That's how it's been entitled. I think it's a good title because that's what's happening here. Um, and just like any of us would hope, if we were presented uh, with Christ in His, uh, sorry, were present with Christ in His earthly ministry, and He told us He was going away, uh, we would want Him to comfort us uh, regarding that event. So He continues to give comfort to His disciples, and I think as well, such a great comfort uh, to us as well as they're hearing this news from Him. I. Woke up this morning at around 2.30 and uh, decided I needed to review my sermon. And I just was so uh, encouraged once again and so uh, just uh, joyful over what we're going to study together this morning. I'm so excited for that. If you're able to, would you please stand with me? I'm going to read aloud as you follow along the verses we're going to look at together. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. You follow along as I read aloud. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, and this is Jesus speaking, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask my Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. That is the reading of the New Testament passage. You may be seated. May it be a blessing to you as you've heard the scripture read aloud both in the Old and New Testament this morning. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, just as we believe that your Spirit has inspired these words that we study together in the original autographs, we also believe that your Spirit, of whom we speak and give praise for this morning, can 
illuminate our eyes and our hearts to an understanding and an application of these truths. And so we ask for that work of the Spirit in the hearts of those who are believers this morning. Lord, you also say in an upcoming passage that the work of the Spirit is to convict of sin and of righteousness. And so we pray not only for that for believers, but for the unregenerate who are in our midst, Lord, that you would convict of sin and righteousness and that you might regenerate souls this morning as we read in our confession by your Spirit who is your agent of regeneration in the hearts of men and women and children. We pray for that work as well, Lord, and we trust all of this to you. I pray that you would set me aside, continue to humble me. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This will not come as a surprise to many of you. I love summer camp. I love that our students get to experience it and that we encourage that as a church. Some of you have given of your own resources to make sure that our students can go to summer camp. And uh, we appreciate that. And others of you uh, pray for them as they are at camp. Summer camp was something that God used in my own life as a student to shape me. My sister Tara, who some of you know, uh, she and I would go to camp with a church that was not our own church, but through being introduced by our uncle to Prince Avenue Baptist Church out of Athens, Georgia, we continued to go to summer camp with them throughout our middle and high school years. We went for two weeks every summer during those years, and it was the highlight of our summer. We loved it so very much. Again, God used those years to shape me and even as a means to call me to full-time ministry. Barry Shettle, who was the youth pastor in those years, by the way, was a youth pastor until his retirement in his later 60s. Can you imagine being a youth pastor into your later 60s? But he was a kid at heart. In fact, he just, he just rode his bicycle in his now 70s uh, from Georgia all the way to Maine. Um, so he is still youth at heart, but, but God used that man to shape my heart for full-time ministry as well as others, but summer camp was a big deal for me. One of the hardest things about summer camp was leaving to head back home. We were from central Florida, and all of our camp friends were from the Athens, Georgia area. It was always a tear-filled goodbye. We knew we would exchange letters and make phone calls, but it wasn't the same as being physically present with our friends. Those two weeks were a charge to us spiritually. It would ramp us up for the school year to come to uh, live for Christ. We'd always walk away from camp with a feeling that we would conquer the world for Christ, and we knew that this triumphant feeling would fade and it always seemed like our spiritual strength for the task was in our numbers and the physical presence of being with these friends. Now, imagine this sort of summer camp experience in the context of the disciples being with Jesus for three and a half years. The ultimate summer camp experience. The ultimate ministry experience. Here is the eternal Son of God who has taken on flesh and is dwelling with mankind and with these men particularly 
and, and others, uh, women as well, who had surrounded themselves around Jesus. And he is dwelling with them. They have been his closest companions while he is ministered on earth. And yet the trajectory of his ministry, almost from the moment of his earthly ministry, the trajectory is to the cross. He lived perfectly. He displayed the power of God his, his power in healing the sick, making the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, and even the dead rise. His own relative, Lazarus, as we saw in chapter 11, raised from the dead. Even as he does this, all the while, proclaiming himself to be I am. Proclaiming himself to be not just God. Some people ask, why doesn't Jesus ever just come out and say, I am God? He, he proclaims himself to be Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, Israel's God, one with the Father. And now he is about to go to the cross and he is talking about leaving. He knows that he is telling them something that is troubling to them and that's... Uh, that as they begin to put together the pieces of what he is saying, they are understanding that he will not always be with them the way that he has been with them for these last three and a half years. This will be the hardest goodbye in their minds. What does he say to comfort them? In essence, he says, though he is leaving them, he is not leaving them. Paradoxes are all over the Scripture. As we think theologically about what we read in the Scriptures, as we derive theology from the Scripture, it seems like there are paradoxes everywhere in the Scripture. And, and Jesus lays another one out here for His disciples, His followers. Though I am leaving you, I'm not leaving you. And in the modern vernacular, we might respond with, say what? Well, here's the main point this morning. Jesus promises that the Father will send the Spirit to those who love and obey Him. Jesus promises that the Father will send the Spirit to those who love and obey Jesus. And in loving and obeying Jesus, of course, they're loving and obeying Father, Son, and Spirit. We want us to see this morning three promises of the coming Holy Spirit who keeps the Father and Son present with believers. If, you're, uh, if you have your worship folder there, turn that over. You'll see those things written for you, if you're tuning in through the live stream, those should have been emailed to you. Three promises of the coming Holy Spirit who keeps the Father and Son present with believers. Jesus promises that the Father will send the Spirit to those who love and obey Jesus. The first promise is this. Jesus promises the Helper. Jesus promises the Helper in verses 15 through 17. Look at those with me again, if you will. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Some of your translations may say comforter. Even, this is who this comforter, this helper is, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
The first thing we notice as we come to this passage is something we've already looked at in our uh, previous sermon in John 14, which is uh, it, this comes in the context of the command to keep Jesus' commandments as those who love him. The, the broader context of, in which Jesus says this is that of, of his leaving. And he is telling his disciples this because he knows their hearts are troubled. So kind of just zooming out once again, we go back to uh, chapter 14 and verse 1, and we see that this is what he is addressing. Let not your hearts be troubled. He is speaking of leaving them, and he knows this is troubling to them. And so he offers comfort to them. And now this newest bit of comfort comes in though he is leaving them, he's not really leaving them. And how does he address this? He addresses it as the coming of the Spirit. Their love for, them, for him will be evident by their obedience to his command. That command is to love God and love one another. And this is only accomplished by what Christ is about to do for them at the cross and by his indwelling presence. So even as we consider this command from the Lord Jesus where he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is the fruit of love for him, which comes from, of course, truly knowing him, which is, of course, only accomplished by what he's about to do at the cross, which, of course, then ends with his um, resurrection and then eventual ascension. And then what? How will we be empowered to love him and keep his commandments by his indwelling presence, which is what he's about to explain to them. And we're going to look at this not only this week, but next week as well. I I know that that's a surprise to you since this is part one. We will have a part two. What then are his words of comfort as he is talking about going away? As he even says to them, Love the way that I have shown you love most recently by the washing of the feet. Um, Don't be troubled, I'm going away, but you must love me and keep my commandments, though I am leaving. How does he comfort them? What are his words of comfort? He is asking the Father to send them another helper to be with them. Notice what it says, forever, forever. Look at a couple things here. Jesus says, another helper. Another implies that there is already a helper. This is Christ himself. Notice that he says, you know the Spirit because he is with you, but he will dwell in you. Uh, Who is, as it were, uh, the one who is dwelling with them, bearing the Spirit, as it were, with them as they are walking this earth? It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is anointed by uh, the Spirit at his baptism. An indication of his earthly ministry, a confirmation of who he says he is, even as he performs miracles. This implies that he himself has been a helper to them. John Chrysostom, an early church father, writes how this shows the difference in person, another helper but oneness of substance between the Father, Son, and Spirit. He sends another, but the one who is sent is like unto himself. And it is the Father who sends the Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian language here. Jesus, as the one who has professed himself to be the great I Am, the eternal Son of God, 
saying that he is a helper, but the Father, he will ask the Father, and the Father will send another helper, even the Spirit of truth. Later, Jesus will breathe on them to signify the coming of the Spirit who is sent at Pentecost by the Father and the Son. That breathing out of Jesus is a a precursor to the, the, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. So we see both Jesus, and actually we see this all in this passage, but Jesus talks about asking the Father, and He Himself will send the Spirit, which is later signified when He breathes on the disciples. Because the word Spirit means breathe, means wind, ruach. It's God's breath. And the Spirit is sent out by the Father and the Son. So we see this great complexity of the Trinity, but it is a comfort as well. Not only this, but this helper will not leave them as he is leaving them, though we will see he is really not leaving them, but the helper will be with them forever. The presence of the Son and the Father will be with them and in them, as we shall see. Not only this, but the helper is identified, as we said, as the spirit of truth. And this spirit is no force or no thing, as modern day Arians like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach and believe. The spirit is a person. Notice the pronouns here. He says in verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. It is improper, by the way, side note, footnote here for us, uh, those of us who are budding theologians, we want to take some good notes here. It is improper for us to call the Holy Spirit an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. The Spirit is a person. The context tells us who is going to benefit from the ministry of this spirit helper. Look again. He makes a very clear distinction here. It is not the world. It is believers. It is not the world. It is believers. The world cannot receive him, the spirit of truth, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Notice where the Spirit's location is and where He will be. He is with them currently, as I mentioned earlier, manifested currently in the person of Jesus Christ, though we're not modalists. We're not saying that God is now present as Jesus and the Spirit will come later because the, God will somehow just turn into the Spirit. No, the reality of the presence of Christ with them is Emmanuel, God with us. This is my son in in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descends and is with Jesus even as the person of the Spirit is with them in Jesus. He will then be in them. Believer, if you're here and you're in Christ this morning, this is our reality. We are post-Pentecost And in the new covenant, we both know him, that is the spirit, and see the evidence of him in our life by what Paul calls the fruit of the spirit. How is the spirit manifest to the disciples at this moment? It is in the person of Christ. He is being, uh, uh, he, he himself is being propelled by the spirit into different situations. We see that in Luke, the spirit propels Jesus into the wilderness 
The evidence for us is seen in the fruit of the Spirit. So the question for us this morning is, are we, are you aware of this? Are we, are you living like this is true? Because, here's a big surprise, it is. It is true. Do you ask the Spirit of truth to illuminate truth to you? We're going to see next week where Jesus says, this is the, the role, I don't like that word, this is what the Spirit does in our hearts. The Spirit recalls to the disciples and therefore to us as well the words of the Lord. Do you ask the Spirit of truth to illuminate that truth to you? Do you pray that you exhibit the fruit of the indwelling of the Spirit? Now, even as I ask these questions, it's convicting me. The Spirit's doing His work. See, it's evidence, right? Because I don't always do this. Do you confess when you don't do these things and trust that God's forgiveness is real and yet that God wants you to live like the Spirit is real and indwelling you? That is what we must do. And it is grounded upon the gospel. It is grounded in the finished work of Christ. If he does not finish his work, then he does not resurrect and he does not ascend. And the Spirit does not come. In chapter 16, Jesus says, it's better that I leave so that the Spirit comes. This is real. To those who are not in Christ this morning, you are the world of which Jesus speaks here. You cannot know God really. You cannot receive the Spirit because you need to meet Christ first. You must turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. That is my plea with you today. Hear these words as words of the one who is, a, is leaving because he's going to the cross. He has lived a perfect life. He has died the death that you deserve receiving the justice of the triune God upon himself. He rose again three days later to show his victory over sin and death, and he ascended and sent the Spirit. Trust in him. This promise of Jesus at which we are looking is not only about sending the helper, but also how Jesus manifests his presence with them through the helper as we see And our second point, secondly, Jesus promises to not ultimately leave them. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Again, he says, I will not leave you, but I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. How is an orphan made? Typically through a parent's death or a parent's abandonment. So in in one sense, Jesus Uh, is going to die. Uh, So maybe this evokes some images of the fact that that he is going to die. But we also know that he does not remain dead. Again, appealing to Chrysostom, he reminds us he does refer to them as little children. This may be the reason for that metaphor of, of orphans. So he continues the language in this way and says he will not leave them as orphans. Now here's where the summer camp analogy breaks down. These relationships that we had were special. They meant something to us. And if we had experienced true loss in this life, like the loss of a dear loved one, this hurts worse than anything. We've experienced a lot of loss over the last year and a half. But nothing can compare 
to what the disciples are feeling here. This is God dwelling with mankind. This has not occurred. Think about this. Jesus in the incarnation coming to earth, Emmanuel, God dwelling with us, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, he tabernacled amongst us. He, he, he made his dwelling place amongst mankind. This has not happened since when? Since the garden. This has not happened in this way, and not in this way in particular, but the dwelling of the garden. Mankind dwelled in harmony with God in the garden. At that time, unbroken untainted fellowship that Satan and mankind's sin destroyed. Now Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has come, and He has dwelled on the earth for some 33 years, and the last three plus of those with these men, and now He is talking about leaving them. And in His earthly dwelling, in His incarnation... He manifests, once again, the dwelling of God with men. That is why John evokes language from Genesis chapter 1, in John chapter 1. Very similar language is used there. He is, he is trying to get the reader to think about Genesis chapter 1 and the dwelling of God with man. This is indeed the hope of all mankind, to be reconciled to their Creator once again. That which sin has taken away, a walking and present relationship with God, is temporarily a physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thought? But now He's saying to them He's leaving. He's leaving. But He assures them He is not leaving them as orphans. But he here does not refer only to his resurrection, but more so to the point he is currently making that even after his resurrection he will leave and that he will come again to receive them to himself. He says that earlier, also in John 14. But, But what happens in the meantime? What happens in the meantime? In the meantime, he will not leave them as orphans, he says. Now, it does seem that Christ is referring to at least the whole event of his resurrection and his ascension and that he mentions what he does in verse 19. Look at it. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In what sense is Jesus going to live? Well, he's already alive, but he's going to die and then he's going to come back to life. Well, didn't that happen with Lazarus? Well, yes, but no, because what happens to Lazarus? What, Lazarus, as soon as he comes back to life after Jesus raises him from, from the dead, starts dying again. Jesus is alive and has been alive since his resurrection. Because he lives, we will live. Jesus is talking here about resurrection life. Yet a little while the world will not see me, but you will see me. How? Well, because I live, you will live. What does this mean? The world does not see him, but does the, not the world also live? Yes, they live but not the life that those who are in Christ live. Because He lives, they live. Because of His resurrection, there's a resurrection that they and we will experience. What is that experience? Look at verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. In that day, what day? 
Well, in one sense, we can think of this in regard to the, the resurrection life. We, we will know that we live because he lives, because when we see him, we will be like him, First John chapter 3, uh, sometimes called the, the beatific vision or the visio dei, if you're fancy and like Latin. But uh, the point is, is that we know we will be like him when we see him, yet we do not know what we will be like. So what is happening in the meantime? How do we know that he lives? Well, the old song, the old hymn says, because he lives within my heart. But, and, and, and that is what Jesus is referring to here, and, and we'll get to that. But, but how does he dwell within us? It says, by his spirit. Now, it seems like there, there are events that we can look to to say, this is how we know this. First and foremost, and, and, and most gloriously, the day of Pentecost. What happens at the day of Pentecost? The, the disciples are in the upper room, interestingly enough, uh, as they are here. And what happens? The Spirit comes and dwells in them. And then what do they go and do? They go and proclaim the gospel to the Jews that are gathered from all around the world for uh, the Feast of Pentecost. And 3,000 of them also get saved and receive the Spirit. Where is Jesus? Well, he's ascended, right? But we also understand that he is manifesting himself to his church in that day by his spirit. I'm going to manifest myself to you is what he says. Look at, look at it again. In that day, you will know that I, verse 20, I am in the Father and, the, and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is... Um, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is going to appear in uh, some sort of a dream to you or something along those lines. No, he is going to manifest himself. The context of this is all about the indwelling of the Spirit, the coming of the Helper. How does Jesus manifest himself to us today? Not physically, but spiritually through what is known as the Spirit of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit. This is indeed the hope for those of us who are in Christ. Christ's resurrection and ascension signal the coming of the Spirit, and though He has ascended, Christ is with us. The Spirit of Christ is in us. How can the Holy Spirit who is a person within the triune Godhead be known as the Spirit of Christ. Just in the same way he is known as the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. He is a third person, but he is also of the same essence as the Father and the Son. Co-equal, co-eternal, yet distinct in person. Remember, we, we studied this in the Equip Hour. If you weren't here, sorry you missed out on it. The Father is unbegotten, the Son begotten, and the Spirit is spirated or sent, breathed out by the Father and the Son. For those who are not in Christ, you do not see Him as you ought to see Him because you are not His and He does not live in you. You have a distortion of Jesus because your vision needs to be corrected by the Spirit of truth. My call to you today is to turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. And then the Spirit will dwell within you and you will see Jesus rightly.
The disciples, though, have a question about this manifestation as we see in our final point. Jesus promises that he and the Father will make their home with those who love him. Can you just pause for a minute and think about that truth? That is a joyous truth. The Father and Son, by the ministry of the Spirit, will make their home in the believer. It's beautiful. It's beautiful truth. Look at verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, that's how he wants to be known for the rest of his life, I'm sure. Wait, Judas? You mean that? No, 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 not that one. Not Iscariot. <laughs> that's his deal from now on, right? The other one, you know. Um, can we just change my name to not Iscariot? That would be awesome. <laughs> Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? It's a great question. This doesn't make sense because what do they currently have? They have Jesus manifested to them, excuse me, to them physically. He is there present with them. He is there performing miracles and by those works of power confirming that he is the I am and that he is the Messiah. So so Judas, not Iscariot, is asking, uh, this doesn't make sense to us. Can we also be reminded this morning that they very much thought the kingdom was going to be a physical kingdom and at this moment that Jesus was going to do this. They're very conflicted about this leaving language because to them, how are you going to conquer Rome and bring Israel back to its rightful place in the land and this doesn't you see the 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 dots aren't connecting for them and so he says and and i think this is even with a hopeful kind of a like how are you going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world if you're going to establish a physical kingdom like people are going to see you reigning on a throne that's what makes sense to them this doesn't make sense to them so Jesus answers this in verses 23 and 24. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, regardless of your eschatological or end times understanding of things, can we just recognize something here? Jesus is answering this question, which I think is very much a question about the kingdom, by saying, You are the kingdom. The spiritual reign of Christ dwelling in the hearts of men and women of faith manifests to the world Jesus Christ. How will Jesus manifest himself to them and not to the world? Through the indwelling of the Spirit. And yet we manifest him to those by loving him and obeying him. The world will know that you are my followers, how? If you have love for one another. Read verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. This is definitive, by the way. Jesus is drawing very definitive lines here. This is definitive as I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
The first point that Jesus makes is that those who are truly in him as evidenced by love for him are those in whom the Father and the Son live. It's not reversed, by the way. It's not love and obey Jesus and uh, we will, he will grant the Spirit to you. No, the evidence of the fact that you have the Spirit is that you love and obey. That is the fruit of the Spirit. We do nothing to merit God's grace. It wouldn't be grace. We do nothing to merit God's mercy. It wouldn't be mercy. God bestows those upon, yes, those who repent and have faith. But remember, repentance and faith are a gift. So why do we call indiscriminately on Sunday mornings for people who are in our midst who do not know Christ to repent and believe because that's what they need to do. It's just that God is the one who does it. He's the one who awakens them to that. That's why I pray many times at the beginning of my sermons, Lord, let your spirit do the work of regeneration in the hearts of those who do not know you. It is only as they look back upon uh, that um, time of turning from their sin and trusting in Christ that they realize that God has done it all. We can't present anything to him. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And yet, verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 says, we are created as his workmanship, given works to do before the foundation of the world, that we might walk in them. We don't reverse it. You can't manifest Christ without the Spirit. He clearly says that here. How do we know? It's by our love and obedience to Him. The opposite of what He says here is just as definitive. Those who do not love Him do not keep His word. They're not His. They don't manifest the fruit of the Spirit because they don't have the Spirit. Notice this is from the Father, not on the authority of the Son alone, but on the authority of the Father who is in the Son and the Son in the Father. This is the Word of God, not some mere man. Jesus is the God-man. So when he says in verse 24, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father who sent me, just so you understand, this is not some mere man speaking is what he's trying to emphasize there. This is the God-man. This is the one who does what he sees his Father doing. He's helping us think about this. Dear ones, just as this is no mere summer camp goodbye, this is also no mere summer camp reunion that Jesus promises. He is promising that once he leaves, he and the Father will send the Spirit of truth and we're going to see some of the incredible features of this promise next week. But for now, we focus on the fact that to have the Spirit is to have the Father and the Son residing in us. Christian, rejoice in this truth this morning. This is reason to worship. You say, you know, some of these, uh, the practical application is, we're not really, this is the practical application, rejoice. Worship the triune God. The presence of the triune God is with us if we are those who are united to Christ through belief in his life, death, and resurrection. Do you understand the immensity of this for your life as a Christian? There is never a time when God is not with you. 
Sit with that for a minute. (laughs) There is never a time, if you are in Christ, there is never a time when God is not with you. There is never a time, there is never a sin you commit for which God is not present. Sobering, right? That's convicting. But there is never a moment when you are broken over your sin that God is by his spirit not able to remind you that you are by his life, death, and resurrection his. Both things can be true. We can have conviction and comfort by both of those things. There's never a sin we commit that God isn't present for. But he is present because you are his. He is in you. And when we pray and ask for forgiveness, he is with us. And he reminds us and comforts us with the truth that the work is finished. The work is finished. There is never a time when you cannot comfort a fellow believer with this truth, when they are struggling with their sin or struggling with the weight of this world. Christ is not dwelling with us physically, but he is dwelling in us by his spirit. Therefore, husbands, are you reminding and encouraging your wife with this truth? Wives, are you reminding and encouraging your husbands with this truth? Parents, are you teaching and proclaiming the gospel to your kids and reminding them of God's presence? Students and singles, are you surrounding yourself with those who can remind you of these great truths? Are you being the one in the group of friends to point everyone to this truth of God's indwelling presence? Are we, as a church, reminding and comforting each other with these truths? That is the joy of the indwelling presence of the triune God this morning and through our life. What does the book of Hebrews say? Jesus never leaves you nor, what, forsakes you. How? His manifested presence through the Spirit carries us through. I love what Paul says when he says in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit is the deposit, the down payment, the promise ring of resurrection and reunion. Don't you long to see Jesus? I long to see Christ. I long to see him face to face. I love the hope of 1 John 3, that when we see him, we will be like him. But don't wish for that in such a way that you lose out on what Jesus says it is better for him to go away so that the Spirit would come. You know what? Jesus physically is at the right hand of the Father. Spiritually, he is with you. Rejoice in that, Christian. Rejoice in that truth. For those who are not in Christ, my call to you once again is that you turn from your sins and trust in Christ so that you can know the true presence of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do pray that by the indwelling of your spirit, we would be reminded and be encouraged and be comforted by your presence with us. That you are not far. Lord, you have made your home in every believer who is here. And that should not only comfort us, but unify us, Lord. 
The same spirit who lives in me lives in my brothers and sisters here. And we are one in the spirit. So Lord, encourage us with that. Help us to encourage one another with that truth. Uh, not only on a Sunday, but throughout the week as we interact and seek to live lives of discipleship with one another. Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. They would trust you. Or that you would come and make your home in them today. I praise you for what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen.